Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting, home of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, Flight School. MIPS Flight School helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIPS score in a group coaching setting and at an affordable price. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Our conversation today features Dr. Uche Blackstock. She's a Harvard-educated physician who is passionate about equality and justice in society. She's talking to us about her upbringing, what can be done to address both implicit and explicit bias in healthcare, and how she is hard at work curating the change she wants to see in medicine. Sure. So I'm currently, I have two roles. One is at NYU School of Medicine, where I am an emergency medicine physician. I'm actually an associate professor uh, in the Department of Emergency Medicine. I have several roles there um, in medical education uh, and in diversity affairs. I also just started my own LLC earlier this year called Advancing Health Equity. And the goal of that venture uh, is to address healthcare disparities by really focusing on uh, the workforce, uh, training uh, providers to be uh, more aware of their implicit biases and more aware of structural racism, as well as uh, assessing workplace culture for race equity. So you're not busy at all. You're just like, <laughs> hanging out. You're on social media all day dealing with life-threatening illnesses and trying to reduce disparity across different populations and backgrounds. Right. Um, I'm so very busy. <laughs> I, I'm teasing, of course. So the, I, I understand you got into medicine because you're, is it your mother who is also a physician? Is that correct? Yes. So my mom was a nephrologist, which is a kidney doctor. She was the first person in her family to finish college. Uh, she was in, in medical school at a time when 
there were very few women and very few black women. She attended Harvard Medical School and uh, she was encouraged by one of her chemistry professors to even apply to medical school. She had not even thought about it. She did uh, and did well. And so she was uh, my inspiration. I have a twin sister who's also a physician. Our mom was our role model. So we wanted to be, just be like her. That's really neat. So was, you know, some of her experience and your learning through her and then maybe some of your own school and training and just seeing this very much play out in a real way, these disparities and these biases, is that what inspired the new LLC? So, yeah. So actually what's interesting is I had been in my diversity role at NYU School of Medicine for about two years, but I've been on faculty there for over nine years. And I've always worked peripherally with the diversity affairs office, whether it be mentoring students or serving on a panel. Then this opportunity came up where I focused on recruitment, retention, and inclusion of faculty and students from underrepresented groups. And it was doing that work that I really began to see how uh, really educating uh, uh, clinicians about these issues. So whether it be students or, or faculty, physicians in the emergency department about health disparities and unconscious biases, uh, why that work is so incredibly impactful. I have a question. For, I'm really just curious about people's experience. So if you're having conversations around their unconscious biases, how do they react when they become conscious of them? Like that must be an interesting conversation or like awareness that's happening. Can you speak to that? I don't know, observation. Well, it's interesting because many people, especially more senior physicians will say that they don't have any unconscious biases. And we respond, of course, because they're unconscious. Often for our trainings, we have participants take the Harvard implicit association test and I think many are very surprised by the results. It's interesting, especially with physicians, uh, when they take this implicit association test, they want, to, they want to do well on it. And well, of course, is showing that they have no bias. But the issue is that, and the literature has shown this, that physicians actually have very low explicit bias. So um, they will not be you know, explicitly or overtly biased towards a patient, but they actually carry a high level of implicit biases. So biases that are unconscious or that are they're unaware of. And many are very, very surprised. Many feel embarrassed to even talk about their results. When we have our trainings, we have them take the test before we meet and we have a discussion in small groups. And often it's like pulling teeth because they don't want to admit their results. And so we really do a deep dive into the results and how they feel, whether they were expected or un unexpected, and how the results are going to influence their practice uh, thereafter. So we were actually part of a uh, Health Tech Reads Twitter chat last night, and it was specifically around this subject. And I think there was a lot of awareness of people in healthcare, some in medicine, talking about the reality is, to some extent, we all have them. And so that in mindfulness and awareness, and really just you know, carrying that forward to be aware of those implicit and explicit biases is, is really what's important. Um, do you have some examples where you've seen it play out through colleagues or peers or people you've worked with to do some of these assessments or trainings, or you've seen an, an example maybe for our listeners of an implicit and an explicit bias playing out? I, I mean, I got to imagine that, especially in the emergency room, that, that 
that may very well be more pervasive than, say, some other settings. Well, yeah, it's interesting because especially in the emergency department, you know, we see a lot of patients. We don't have a lot of information on the patients. Often it's their first visit to our hospital. We don't know them well. It's a very stressful environment. We are in a time crunch. And so it's really the prime environment for implicit biases to play out. And sometimes when I'm working with my residents, uh, they'll come to me and they'll be describing a patient, right? And they may not have even seen the patient yet. They've read the chart, uh, the patient's medical record. There's a picture of the patient and they've made, already made tremendous assumptions about the patient. So they, they put a picture together because that's what our minds like to do. Our, our minds like to categorize information. And it's interesting because half the time when they go see the patient, they have a totally different perspective after seeing the patient because they've already um, formed all of these biases about the patient. So especially in the emergency department, we have to be very, very careful about our implicit biases potentially causing detrimental effects in the way that we communicate with our patients and in the way that we make decisions. So we know that already in uh, the pain literature that there are discrepancies between the way um, Black and Latino patients are treated regarding pain and white patients. And that literature is really actually quite overwhelming. We know that even for um, objective findings of, say, a, a femur fracture, the femur is the, the thigh bone, that even there are discrepancies in the amount of pain medication given to Black and Latino patients versus white patients. And so when that is analyzed, a huge factor that's considered in that is provider bias. Can we talk about just that in particular and where that idea comes from? Because it feels very controversial, I think, what I'm about to say, but I think it is that um, People think that Black and Latino folks have a higher tolerance for pain, and why? Maybe is, is it potentially tied to slavery and slave conditions, and that way back when it was like, oh, they don't feel this or something? Like, I don't know, some sort of cognitive dissonance that you're not actually harming this person? Right. So that's really interesting that you bring that up, because you know, medicine uh, and race and racism have had actually a very... Uh, very intertwined connections since uh, medicine was even created in the United States. So even thinking about, there's an OBGYN named J. Marion Sims. You may have heard about him. He is considered the grandfather of modern gynecology. He created the vaginal speculum that our OBGYNs use when we go to get our yearly pap smear. Well, he is also known because he developed a technique for fixing vesicovaginal uh, fistulas. And these are fistulas that women um, during slavery often developed due to childbirth. And he developed a technique to fix this. But he, in the way that he developed this technique, he actually experimented on women who were enslaved. And obviously, these women could not give consent. And he did these surgeries at a time when there was no local anesthesia. Anesthesia had not been created yet. So he made these really wonderful discoveries, but he did it in a way uh, that is very um, concerning and potentially disturbing. But I think in doing that, in a way also dehumanized these women who were slaves and probably had a different sense of whether or not they were able to perceive pain or not. 
And I think these ideas about perceptions of pain and how they may differ by racial groups, I think it still stands. There, there was actually a study in a, one of our, our magazines a few years ago looking at students from UVA, medical students and residents, and they gave them two case scenarios, one with a black patient and one with a white patient. And they asked these students and residents to rate the patient's pain and then to give treatment recommendations. And the cases were exactly the same except for the race of the patient. And they also asked these students and residents whether or not they believed in these false beliefs about Black patients, whether their, pa their skin was thicker, whether they had less nerve pain nerve endings, whether they could feel pain less. And they found that the students who believed in these false beliefs about pain associated with race were less likely to give pain medications, or if they did, were to give a smaller amount. So unfortunately, you know, we live in a society where, you know, there are systems of oppression, we, you know, we have racism in our society, and, you know, we breathe in these cultural associations all the time. And unfortunately, this influences how we take care of our patients. How is it, you know, you talk about the biases and the assessments in a way to you know, have people be aware of these things, have conversations and what they do going forward. How do you have the conversation around racism when it comes to treating a patient? What are some of the things that either you're doing or that need to happen to really, to really help resolve some of these preconceived notions that people have, these, the racism and really the downstream impact to the patient, right? Right. Um, especially when it comes to pain as, you know, a, a symptom or even a vital at times, right? What are some of the things that you're doing or the things that need to be happening to resolve that disparity? So I, I think that the approach has to be a multi-pronged approach. I think that implicit bias trainings are very important because they do raise an awareness about, about these biases that we hold. I also think that we need to really transform how we're educating our clinicians, not just physicians, but nursing and physician assistants. So I think it's part of the education. For example, in our first year medical school class, we teach our students about this history, about J. Marion Sims. Many of them don't even know about this OBGYN who is really well known and who had a statue actually up in Central Park up until about a year ago. And these people who are very admired Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of education about them. So I think it's important really to talk about the history of race in medicine. And I think another issue is we need a diverse workforce. So we need to think about how can we bring more people of color into, into healthcare so that we can have a workforce that represents or reflects rather our patient population. So some of the things I'm doing with, you know, with my business, I do implicit bias trainings, but I also talk about structural racism and how there have been practices and policies in place, such as redlining. So for example, many people don't know about redlining and its effects on health outcomes. So redlining, even though it was around in the early 1900s and was a government sanctioned program that resulted in certain communities uh, not being able to get mortgages, right? So that resulted in poverty in those communities, and that reflect that resulted again in poor health outcomes. So you see these communities that were redlined decades ago now have the highest asthma rates. They have the highest diabetes rates. 
um, they have the highest infant mortality and maternal mortality rates. And so I think it's very important that we really understand how practices and policies have left us to where we are um, right now. And then also in terms of, as I mentioned, diversifying the workforce, we need to think about programs. So for example, like pipeline programs, K through 12 pipeline programs that we can use to get more people of color into medical school, into nursing school, so that they can be clinicians. And because actually, um, clinicians of color are more likely to go to serve and practice in communities of color. Um, and we also know that uh, racial concordance overall. So if you have a clinician of a certain race and a patient of a certain race, that, that actually results in better health outcomes. And so diversifying the workforce is another area that we, we really need to work on as well. So two things. For mm -hmm. our listeners that are hearing you speak, could you give just a summation of what redlining is for people that may not know about that systemic denial and how it happens? Okay, sure. So so redlining basically was um, sort of a policy where the government assigns certain grades to certain neighborhoods. So A, B, C, or D. So an A neighborhood was highly desirable to live in and a D neighborhood wasn't. And so it turns out that the D neighborhoods were mostly neighborhoods of color. But what that resulted in was those D neighborhoods or those neighborhoods with lower, lower grades or lower scores were not able, people living in those neighborhoods were not able to receive government-backed mortgages because those areas were considered less desirable. So it resulted in these areas not being developed, not having businesses, um, just resulted in high rates of poverty. And so fast forward to now, decades later, we're seeing the results of redlining. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of people that are still trying to implement strategy to essentially reverse its effects. So thank you for taking the time to explain it. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, as a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly, so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on Patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on Patreon.com and let's make something amazing together. Could we dabble in for a moment? Because not only are you a woman of color in medicine, you are also a, a woman in medicine. Can we dabble in maybe gender bias and shift to that? Mm -hmm. And can you speak to maybe anything you're doing in that space or some experience you've had and really, you know, Joy and I operate in a male-dominated field and, right. you know, we feel right. kind of some of that 
you know, you show up and there's a certain type of person at JP Morgan and at HIMSS and the health IT side of things. Can you talk to our listeners and us about what you've experienced as a woman in medicine? Sure. And what's interesting about being a woman in medicine is that um, actually last year was a, a significant year for us because the percentage of women in medical school actually matched our percentage in the, in the national population. And what we've been seeing over the last 25 years is an increase in women going into, into medicine. And currently, the majority of most medical school classes are women. Um, but the issue that we're seeing is that although we have, um, we have a, a great healthy pipeline of women coming into medicine, we aren't seeing women in leadership positions, which I know is very similar to other uh, industries and other professions. So when we look at the CEOs, the chairs, the deans of medical schools, we're seeing a, a dearth of women, like, you know, single digit percentages sometimes. And so one of my roles, um, the, my diversity affairs role, the other part of it is that I am focusing on advancement inclusion of women faculty. So not only are we focusing on uh, professional development, so we try to hold professional development sessions and seminars for women faculty. We fund them to go to um, the AAMC, which is the American Association of Medical College. They have yearly professional development seminars for women. We fund several of our faculty to go there, but we also try to hold um, our chairs accountable. So we have a dashboard with the breakdown by gender of uh, faculty in their department, and we have them develop strategic plans as to what their target goals are, by what time, or by what um, period of time. And so every year when they meet with our dean, uh, we're expecting them to tell us about procedures and programs that they're using to not just recruit, but to retain women faculty. And so Again, like we, we see the similar similar problem, problems as you, as you see in, in health IT. I think it has to be a concerted effort. So not just career development on an individual level, but really um, challenging the prevailing culture, which, you know, is not inclusive of women. And so I think I also do work with um, Times Up Healthcare, and we talk about, you know, gender equity and creating environments where, for example, sexual harassment doesn't happen. And so sexual harassment in medicine, when you look at uh, science and engineering, it's actually most prevalent in medicine. And even half of all female medical students have experienced some form of sexual harassment. And so that's another, another area that we need to address in order to create an inclusive environment uh, for women in medicine. And something that's coming up for me is when becoming aware and you know um, having all of these studies and making people aware of what the disparities are it kind of creates a baseline so that so that the folks that are not in the minority or you know that are in positions of power a lot of times even last night in this chat we hear that men just like oh I didn't know that that was a problem oh I, I like at, it, it never occurred to me that you were facing these challenges and and sort of like I don't know if it's hiding, but just sort of kind of deflecting whether or not it's an issue. And then I think that part of this process of creating that baseline and then hopefully following up, say, hey, here's the data. Here's what we have found. Here are our results. How can we hold people accountable so that it's not just a one-time conversation, that it actually does generate the change that we're, you know, hopefully that we're looking for, that there's a cultural shift. And so... I'm curious about, you know, you have the initial training with a group of people. How do you continue that conversation so that there is, 
true growth, you know, and development through right, the no, issue. Yeah, absolutely. That is the challenging question because I think especially with, you know, these unconscious bias trainings and implicit bias trainings, the concern is that um, it's a one, it's one and done and that there will be no follow-up. So what I especially do with my trainings is I check in um, at six months and a year and depending on the organization that I'm working with, I like to use sort of several parameters to see whether or not change has in fact happened. So I think that's also one way um, to keep people accountable. Um, another organization I'm working with, they are incorporating um, text messaging, um, incorporating reminding, reminders in meetings and, and grand rounds to always sort of bring up uh, implicit bias. So to have it as part of uh, the cultural conversation of the organization, and it's not just bringing it up once or twice a year. So just constant reminders that um, this is an issue that we need to discuss. And I also think about, you know, recruitment and how there are ways in the language we use in our advertisements for jobs that can maybe um, potentially alienating to women. When you think about search committees and how representation of women are, are not adequate. And so these are things that we need to think about, right, to have a certain number of women on search committees or a certain number of people of color on search committees, because if you don't have that, then it's likely that certain um, people will be forgotten or overlooked. So I think, there, you know, to address this issue, it has to be a multi-pronged approach. So you touched on something briefly, which was about retention of women in the space of healthcare and medicine and some of the ideas that people are talking about or things are trying to facilitate or curate. Has there been something, maybe an idea someone's come up with or a, a call to action that's really, that you've seen a great impact or maybe even something simple that people that are out there that are listening, whether it's in academia or in the workplace, in a hospital, could, could do today? Is there some takeaway that if you could give one thing to somebody or some nugget of information that they could do as far as being cognizant of retaining females in the workplace and in their training, what what would that be? Have you, have you seen anything like that come to light? I mean, I, I mean, obviously, so I'm, I'm a founding member of, of Times Up Healthcare. So when I think about just our prevailing, like our mission and our message, we talk a lot about, you know, in healthcare, our goal really is to provide the best patient care possible. And in order to do that, we need a safe, respectable, dignified workplaces. And so I think that that's something that everyone, regardless of their gender or race, can agree on, then I think that we can actually try to work towards that goal. And also, in, in order for um, women to flourish in these environments, right, we need to make sure that we're supporting them and, and treating them equitably. I think this idea of, of equitable treatment is something that maybe not everyone feels comfortable with, but we realize that women uh, may have different needs in the workplace than, than men do. But if our end goal is the same, uh, to provide great health care, then we should do what we need to do to make that end goal happen. And if that's supporting women in an equitable fashion, then we should do that. Thank you. I think that's really smart. Um, I have to shift to you in kind of personal accomplishments. We see you very present in social media, really living out this, this mission and your goals, not only in emergency medicine, and in reducing health disparities and tackling these very tough but very present issues, we also saw that you're on the Dr. Will show, that you're featured in the New York Times, that 
you're in a lot of places. What do you think some of your biggest accomplishments to date are, or what are you particularly proud of over, over your lifetime in this space thus far? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I feel like I have the opportunity to, I have a platform to have a voice for these issues that not everyone is aware of or not that everyone is educated about. So I'm trying to use my platform to educate people, especially about health disparities and structural racism, so that we can be at least a little bit closer to, to addressing these issues. I guess it's interesting because when I had, I, I have two young children, and it was really in the last five years since I had them that I've become even more ambitious, and that's because I really want to leave the world a better place for them. Um, I think that there are a lot of things that we can get depressed about um, and what's going on you know, in, our, in our country right now. And so if I can do my one little piece to contribute something positive, um, then I will. And my kids are my inspiration to do that. I'm just over here going, oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's true, though. No, it's really, it's, no, it's really true. Um, and I also what I realized is as well that I, when I started my company a few months ago, it was something I thought maybe I would just want to do on the side, but I'm becoming, beginning rather to realize that I think this is something I would love to do full time because it gives me a certain freedom to be an entrepreneur that you don't necessarily have within academic medicine and that I may be able to even make a larger impact by having my own business and being able to reach more people. Yeah, having that um, agency and that license to fully live the mission without people kind of putting constraints on it is a really beautiful thing. Exactly. I think you know what I mean. I um, can't be as transparent as I would like to now, but eventually when I am running my business full time, we can can chat again. Um, But definitely there are constraints. Uh, especially when you're salaried, working within and within in an institution, and I, what I realized recently is to be able to do the work I want to do and to do it authentically. That being on my own and doing this on my own uh, would be more impactful. Yeah, I can imagine that there's probably some more gravity and genuineness that you could bring to the situation without uh, without that. Um, I don't know. I guess without being anchored to those obligations in that full-time job. And Joy and I can relate to that a little bit. So um, certainly not with the same degree of impact that it sounds like you're having or could possibly have, but it's it's nice to have that agency. And also, I I also was interested in working with organizations that want to do the work. So the work is hard. And I would assume that if an organization is coming to me and would like to uh, use my services, that they are actually interested in doing this hard work. And that makes me excited. Well, let's transition to the next question that we ask all of our guests. And this is really um, allowing you to put a magical hat on if you could, you know, a genie appears in front of you and you could have any wish to solve any problem in healthcare or health IT, you know, with a snap of your fingers, what would it be and why? So this may be controversial, but I'm going to put it out there. Um, I know at you may know there's been a lot of conversations about reparations, especially for um, African descendants of slavery. Um, and what I would love is if we could put some money towards 
low income black and brown communities to develop really community based uh, health organizations that can help advance health equity. Um, I think it's important to get people from the communities uh, involved in these efforts. I think it, it's very empowering and helps to give them agency. Um, and so that is what I would love to see. I know that as recently as about a week ago that there is some more traction on that bill through government process. Does it give you any amount of, of hope or faith that maybe that could come to fruition when you see those types of headlines? It definitely is incredibly promising, especially to see that the conversation is happening and that there are presidential candidates like Elizabeth Warren talking about these issues and saying that, they, that she supports this effort. So I am going to keep my fingers crossed. Um, I think we do have a long way to go. So I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't happen in the next few years. But I think if we continue the conversation and, and even like normalize this conversation so it doesn't seem so extreme, that I think it could happen in the future. Well, I think that's a, a really good and really important wish. And so I know that there is a lot of talk around it, just like the other hard conversations you're having. So I, I think that's the important thing is that the conversations are taking place, that people aren't sticking their head in their hand or that we can have these challenging dialogues. Right. right, um, right. And so that is, that is just step 1A of so much that needs to happen. And it sounds like you, not only do you personally have a platform, but you're really continuing to solidify this foundation for that to occur. Definitely. And um, I would love to see it happen. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. So healthcare is a beast. Uh, medicine, I'm sure is the same. Things change daily, if not hourly. Tell our listeners as a physician, as a woman in medicine, as someone tackling all of this difficult stuff, where do you keep up with things? What are you reading either personally or professionally? Uh, it could be blogs, things you listen to. Our listeners want to know what you're reading. Okay, so I have very little time because obviously I have so many different roles and I'm the mom of two small children, but I listen to a lot of podcasts. So some of my favorite podcasts are The Daily on the New York Times uh, podcast. I love another NPR podcast called The Brian Lehrer Show. And my new favorite one is Pod Save the People. So they're all kind of about current events. They, some are more sort of social justice related and they deal with sort of different aspects of our society. But I feel because um, everything that we do is interconnected that it's really important for me to be aware of, of what's going on, not just in healthcare. 100% agree with you. Those are all great. And I am an avid podcast listener, and obviously we're contributing to this space. Right. <laughs> if folks want to find you, if they want to be, if they want to sign up for your training or hire you or even just follow you and be part of the conversation that you're having, where would they do so? So you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Uche B. And you can visit my website, www dot advancing health equity dot com. And I would look forward to, to talking or connecting with anyone who's interested in the work that I do. All right. I'd be frustrated if people are sliding into your DMs wanting to know more about this great work you're doing. Oh yeah, I'm kind of overwhelmed right now. <laughs> but but in a positive way. Well that's a good thing. You know, we are trying to help folks that are our listeners and our guests kind of network and connect with each other. So we've created a LinkedIn group, and um, oh, cool. I, I don't know if you're on LinkedIn. We'd love to join. I am. And have I am on LinkedIn. Okay. We'll make a connection then. 
Awesome. But we're ba we're basically trying to help folks that are in this space if they want to connect and you know hire each other that or work together in any form or fashion to sort of facilitate that. So. Oh, that would be wonderful. Well, thank you, Shay, for having this conversation. This has been really fantastic, and I can't wait to share with our listeners. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. And thank you for having me. I'm um, very, very honored to be able to come and speak with you both. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.